Welcome to Redevelopment Trailblazers, where we talk to the innovators who tackle complex issues to help rebuild America's distressed communities. These pioneers have worked to strengthen the redevelopment economy throughout their careers, using creative, sustainable, environmental, and economic practices to transform the country's most challenging brownfield sites, neighborhoods, and regions. Hi, this is Leslie Parrish, and I'll be your host for the Redevelopment Trailblazers podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm joined by Bob Winslow and Mike Sawinski of Teradex, a company on a mission to protect communities and the environment while allowing for the safe use of contaminated properties and other sensitive lands. Welcome to the podcast, Bob and Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Leslie. Now, Bob, since you're the president and founder, maybe you can start things off by talking about the need you saw that really prompted you to start Teradex back in 2002. Hi, Leslie. First of all, thanks for letting Mike and I join you today. When I heard about Trailblazers, I actually felt that Teradex and the work we were doing as Teradex came together was truly lonely, and yet we knew it was important. You know, it's probably the work similar to the role of a Trailblazer. We were living in a time where a lot of the environmental industry was finding that cleanups couldn't be completed. You couldn't get to those low, low action levels. And the responsible parties for those pollution problems were starting to come to us and and imagine what can you do, um, land use controls that would help us ally the concerns of regulators, basically say, If we don't drill a water well on the site, then no one will drink the water. So we began thinking of a role for a company solely focused on protecting remedies and ultimately found great use in the in brownfield redevelopment by using a technology service that we've developed across the past 20 years. And we're really proud of what we've accomplished to now overseeing approximately 20,000 projects around the world now. So it's a short introduction, but it's nice to be here to talk about Teradex. Well, and we're really glad to have both of you here. Mike, just to turn to you, um, you serve as vice president of Teradex, and I think you came aboard a bit later in its history. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to join up forces with Bob? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And hi again, Leslie, and thanks for having us. Yeah, my story goes back to, well, sadly, the late 90s have been around that long. I was a uh, law school intern at the time at a D.C. environmental advocacy think tank type place, and I was helping to research the then uh, new issue of brownfield redevelopment. Like I said, it was a new thing, and some of the same topics that you hear about today were out there then. We were talking about unintended consequences of circle liability, how clean is clean, and how do risk-based cleanups work, and there was issues, there was tensions, or, or at least different opinions on both sides. Uh, one camp was pushing for cleanups should be fully clean all the time. And another camp of people were, were going, you know, safe enough cleanup is really a good approach, particularly when economic development can come with that. And that was, you know, basically where the brownfield movement was going. And it was in that context where I came across institutional controls for the first time. And it was a new thing, existing, but a new thing. And it was that linchpin where we're allowed you know, safe enough cleanups to actually be safe enough and be reliably safe enough forever. These property law-based restrictions that locked down and made binding future use controls like no water wells, like Bob said, no 
excavation below a few feet, no residential use, and all things like that that were so critical to the success of risk-based cleanups. And I just thought it was fascinating, especially the intersection of engineering and property law. And so I, it shaped my career. I went forward um, for a few years after that and was a consultant to EPA almost exclusively on institutional control issues, tracking, enforcement, and planning. And then I moved on to be an environmental lawyer, also on these same issues. And all during that time, you know, everybody was hearing about Teradex because they were, uh, I wasn't with them at the time, but they were trailblazing. They were the one group out there that was building this neat technology to monitor these institutional controls in a way that was unique and innovative. And it was in that, during that time frame that Bob and I and my paths were crossing all the time. We got to know each other pretty well. And then I ended up joining in and that's how it started. Quick question for you, Mike. I know you and Bob have, have said the words institutional controls, land use controls. Are those terms interchangeable? Are they somehow different from each other? Just wondering for our listeners who might be learning about this kind of concept for the first time or aren't totally in the weeds there. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I'm laughing because back in the 90s when I was coming on board here in this issue, that was debated all the time. What is it? Institutional controls, land use controls, activity and use limitations. They're basically interchangeable. It's a term used to talk about legal and administrative controls designed to prevent certain future uses and certain activities at properties where there's residual contamination remaining so that the wrong things don't happen, like the wrong risks don't happen, the daycare doesn't get built, et cetera, at properties where there's contamination. Gotcha. Thanks. Well, Mike, uh, just to continue on, I'd, I'd love for you to give us some background on, you know, how the brownfield industry has evolved maybe over, you know, the past decade or so, and why these institutional controls or land use controls have really emerged as an important part of these projects across their life cycles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll try anyway. I mean, obviously, that's a big question. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the main brownfield issues have kind of always existed. Cleanup liability fears, uh, risk exposure fears because of residual contamination, risk-based cleanups, you know, how clean is clean. And those same topics still exist. But over the past 10 years, really over the past 20 years, they're just better understood, better managed. There's more legal clarity on all of them. The Brownfield, circular Brownfield amendments in 2002 helped a lot. A lot of state voluntary cleanup programs have provided a lot of clarity, specifically on liability relief and how to clean properties correctly. And the private sector has developed products like environmental insurance and risk transfer mechanisms that are making these brownfield deals still risky, but the just better understood, a lot more expertise in this space. But more specifically on the institutional controls, I think what's neat about those is that well, in short, they're more prevalent than they've ever been. They now have a solid legal foundation where they didn't before. The focus is more and more shifting to the monitoring and compliance of institutional controls, particularly in the past five to 10 years, because it's been in those past five to 10 years with the legal infrastructure behind institutional controls is sort of locked down. That was the big issue in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. But now with that lockdown, it's really, we're really moving to like how best to monitor, how best to assure compliance. Bob, anything you want to add to that discussion? I know that when we've talked previously, you've talked about how, you know, this can even be a part of not only compliance, but also just a key part of achieving any environmental justice goals that are attached to the redevelopment effort as well. I was I was smiling as I listened as I listened to Mike and the question you asked, because a lot of times Mike and I are like 
two hands, opposite hands coming together to grasp the same need or objective. When I, in the past, had looked at brownfield projects, I was always looking through the eye of the occupant or the construction worker. I was looking through the eye of someone who was not a key stakeholder in the institutional control and reading the institutional control, but equally a stakeholder who, uh, like when we talk about the situation of daycare, could have the idea that, oh, in the basement of this brownfield structure that's beautiful and gorgeous, why don't we set up childcare? It seems like a great location. And deep within inside with an institutional control, which is really a legal document, is a restriction. And perhaps the owner of the property is far away. So I began always thinking about, well, how are we going to detect these activities like a sense of use of daycare that would happen in, in a project? So that was my inspiration And it aligns with the legal inspiration that Mike responds to. And of interest, it's Teradex has always been what you might call a win-win business, that when institutional controls are implemented uh, well, the brownfield occupant wins, the uh, environmental oversight agency wins, and the owner wins. And so protecting, you know, against a daycare use, Teradex has these tools to basically go out and monitor and detect any licensing of daycare. And we do it all across the country and we find the lat long of the daycare like you do on Google Maps and we apply it to the location of the property. And being, you know, there is a connection where we detect daycare on a project that uh, in our records we observe should not have daycare and we alert the stakeholders and we All of those stakeholders can be alerted by different means, but we've discovered a little bit like a smoke alarm that once there's smoke and that notice goes out, everyone uh, works together to resolve the the issue. So different starting points for Mike and myself, but a common goal. Great. And I love how tangible that daycare example is and making sure you're not putting use on the property that could possibly harm the people that are utilizing it. I'm wondering, Bob, if there are some other examples you can give us, or or Mike, feel free to weigh in too on how land use controls might work to protect a community or protect the environment, um, especially perhaps using uh, your LandWatch solution. I can pop in real quick. And I know one of the the most exciting ones was at a Superfund site in Los Angeles, where we detected through using the call before you dig, the excavation clearance system, a well that was going to, if installed, would have penetrated an aquitard, basically a feature of the environment that prevents pollution from moving. And we stopped it. And even yesterday, working on a project with EPA, we detected activities that, again, in in a mode of an excavation, but would have been creating a pathway for vapor intrusion into a property. And so those activities were something that Teradex is able to stop. And so I'm proud of that. And I'll just add, because, you know, we... When we're sort of like monitoring things in our administrative end, we see so many institutional controls being protected. So there's like a lot of examples. But a popular one 
uh, lately is just the ability to track property transfers and notify new owners or old owners about the transfer and the fact that the new new owner exists and therefore they need to be aware of the institution controls and to help on that warning system. That's been really common. And then another thing that we see a lot is detecting excavations that would move contaminated soil like off-site without realizing it's contaminated. Mm. So we see a lot of excavations that prevents that type of clean fill, you know, but not clean fill protection. Right. Now, as you look to the future, Mike, where do you see the role of land use controls headed? Do you see innovations occurring that are that are exciting or, you know, notable changes on the horizon? I do. I'll start by just kind of picking up where I left off before about in the last five years or so, really the focus sort of to shift more towards compliance. I mean, what we're seeing with the legal infrastructure in place is the states and EPA are really focused on developing IC monitoring plans and requiring annual compliance assurance reports and really just sharpening the focus on the risk exposure, which is triggering the need for more and more IC compliance assurance work. And historically, that was done by what we call, you know, the drive-bys, where people were just driving by sites and going, oh, yeah, you know, this is still a commercial establishment or whatever. But that's definitely evolving to the more advanced approaches. I mean, EPA has published guidance about advanced uh, monitoring technologies for institutional controls. And obviously, you know, our Bob and myself's day-to-day is really focused on that. So I think now and the future is going to be all about gathering thousands of pieces of data to, on a real-time basis, keep monitoring all these properties to help assure that the wrong thing isn't happening. And even moving further, what what I envision, which is not quite happening yet, is, is this. I'll explain it by saying what kind of happens now and what I think is going to be possible. I mean, right now, a person in a neighborhood can go to any one of, of a website to figure out if their property, if where they live is near maybe contaminated property. And if they're looking really hard, they can look to see whether there's an institutional control issue near their property. But what I see the future is that those same people being able to look and find out about institutional controls in their area and also to be able to see, you know, up-to-date data and aerial imagery and pictures that prove to them and make the community and the people nearby comfortable that this institutional control is actually working exactly the way it was intended to work. Everything is safe. And the data supporting that is like from yesterday or from last week in a very transparent web-based way. That That's where I see the pretty near-term future heading, I, I think, in this space. And any changes in what you're seeing your clients request from you, are they kind of along those lines or are they, do you, do you see kind of changes in, in what questions they're asking or what kind of things they're wanting you to support in terms of land use controls? Yes. For years, we've been serving, we've been providing them with this visibility of land activity data, like this constant flow of real-time data as to what's going on at their site. But what we're seeing more and more is the need to package that up into six-month reports, one-year reports to submit to different stakeholders to provide more of a third-party visibility, whether it's environmental agency visibility or community visibility packaged up to say, you know, to help assure all the stakeholders involved that things are working correctly. And that's one thing. And secondly, we're seeing a lot of attention and appetite for the use of drone imagery to capture on a periodic basis Mm -hmm. the um, status of a property. Because even though we're getting a lot of data, seeing that real-time photo with such high resolution that these drone images provide has been becoming really, really popular. And then thirdly, we're hearing a lot of talk about, like I said earlier, this ability to provide real-time visibility to communities, particularly sensitive communities, where the need to build trust, be transparent is, is even more important. 
Bob, anything you want to add to that discussion? I'd love to get your insights here as well in terms of, you know, what you're seeing in terms of what this might look like in the future, any changes that you all are making maybe to allow impacted communities to be better served. If you have any examples along those lines, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's one one thing about Teradex that I think you're hearing is we've been across the 20 years an incredibly innovative company, almost like a startup company. Uh, our growth's been organic, but all of our ideas have generally been created with our clients. Again, in that complementing mode of Mike and myself, I've been really interested in trying to communicate with those stakeholders like the excavator, like um, the daycare operator, who may not know about the websites to go to or, or might not even have the same language. You know, they might be Spanish speaking and not be able to consume the information that's presented. So one of the fun areas that we're exploring is the use of artificial intelligence, these AI tools that can take environmental information and push it to this party, perhaps in their own language and perhaps interpreted to a level that they can apply. So a good example is a parallel service we run called DigClean. And DigClean, we basically take all of these environmental covenant or institutional control portfolios that a state might have and send them to the excavator when the excavator does their work anywhere across the state. So we imagine this excavator getting this information showing up on their phone and you want to make sure that they can understand it and apply it. So we actually, uh, in the state of Delaware, had a great example, again, back to the childcare solution, where if you remember years ago in New Jersey, there was a mercury incident at a childcare center. Well, in Delaware, we detected via the excavation system and our interaction with the excavator and the regulator, another daycare being put in with this same situation. But in this case, Teradex captured that activity and interpreted that this was an activity that should be stopped and we intervened. So these moments for Mike and myself where we actually prevent that unsafe use are the times when we celebrate this long journey we've been on to lift up Teradex as a kind of like a tool that all of the stakeholders of remedies and brownfields can rely upon to uh, safeguard their projects. Great, thanks. And I, I like your concept of, of thinking of yourselves as kind of in perpetual startup mode. That sounds like it's great for future innovations. <laughs> not, not from my stress level, but yeah, thanks. <laughs> so true. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank you so much, Bob and Mike, for joining. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about Teradex, you can visit their website at teradex.com and we'll drop a link in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening to Redevelopment Trailblazers, presented by the Redevelopment Institute. For more information on successful strategies for brownfields redevelopment, urban renewal, and community revitalization, visit our website at redevelopmentinstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. See you next time.